Section 1 of A History of the Great War, Volume 4, The Great Sallies, Continued, and The Surrender. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Great War, Volume 4, by John Buchan. Chapter 83. Germany Reshuffles Her Cards. October 27, 1916, through October 31, 1917. Part 1. The student who sought to follow German policy during the war was not embarrassed with too much material. The nation was so well disciplined that it was hard to tell when a speech or a press article represented a genuine opinion or was only a move in a diplomatic game. The main committee of the Reichstag, where the more important discussions took place, sat in secret session, and reports of its doings leaked out only by accident. Hence the sequence of German politics had to be judged mainly by events which were apparent to all the world, the fall of a minister, an official pronouncement, and machinations in neutral countries where disclosure soon or late was certain. Yet, in spite of the mist, the outlines were unmistakable, events beyond her eastern frontier had forced upon germany a new orientation of policy if she was to keep her own people in hand and pluck the fruits which the fates had generously offered we have already seen her efforts in russia itself to promote the anarchic elements in the revolution but it was also her business to take advantage of the new wave of jacobinism in order to embarrass the allies by emphasizing those elements in their government and purpose which were least jacobinical like mithridates in asia minor on behalf of her own satrapy she was ready to preach the social revolution it was a delicate game for she had no desire to rouse among her own tame people the furies she would fain release elsewhere it is the purpose of this chapter to consider germany in the role of virtuous democrat the yonker masquerading in the cap of liberty the situation in austria would have forced her to this policy even had there been no other reason for austria was nervous profoundly depressed and feverishly anxious to explore any alley that might lead to peace of all the members of the teutonic league except turkey she had suffered most her armies had been time and again defeated and she had been compelled to take the first shock of each russian offensive such pride as she possessed had been cut to the quick by her prussian taskmasters and she had seen her best troops and her chief generals moved about the map without her assent further the economic strain was growing desperate every corner of the land was hungry and her government made no effort to distribute food stocks with anything like justice among the different classes it looked as if austria might drop out of the war from sheer exhaustion and this was a possibility which germany dare not contemplate for without austria the mitteleuropa ideal was impossible and mitteleuropa in some form or other was at the root of german policy austria-hungary was essential to the berlin-baghdad scheme that drang nach osten undertaken in order to consolidate the fatherland and to provide a continuous block of territory economically self-sufficient and strategically invulnerable to counterbalance the sea-united british empire 
the longer the war lasted the clearer it became that this extension to the southeast was the one thing germany could not forego and remain the germany of the hohenzollerns long before nineteen fourteen she had stretched her tentacles beyond the balkans over anatolia northern syria and mesopotamia by november nineteen sixteen she had conquered poland serbia and the better part of wallachia and with bulgaria and turkey as her satellites the block was complete she did not content herself with the military occupation of these territories the guns were scarcely silent before she had begun their political and economic reorganization with a view to the mitteleopa hegemony should austria fail her the pin would drop out of the whole machine and germany had no intention of permitting such defection in the nature of things austria could not be a very docile or willing ally only the germans and magyars among her people accepted the prussian policy and it is likely that the land would not have shown a majority in favor of war the poles hated the germans though a considerable number owing to their suspicion of russia accepted the lead of vienna the same was true of the ruthenes in eastern galicia her other races the czechs and the slovaks the croats and the slovenes the rumanians and the italians were hostile or indifferent to the central powers partly they were irredentists like the last two looking for succor from their nationals across the borders partly they were self-subsistent nationalities the northern slav group of czechs and slovaks with polish and ruthene allies and the southern slav group of slovenes croats and serbs whose ideal was racial unity even in austria itself there were rifts within the loot the court officials the bureaucracy and the hierarchy were on germany's side so were the german bourgeoisie so were the rich financial houses largely controlled by jews the piquant spectacle was presented of the christian socialist party clerical and anti-semitic joining hands with the national union of liberals semitic and anti-clerical in the honorable task of working pour le roi de prusse but certain powerful elements were jealous of german interference the ancient nobility had no intention of playing the part of puppets pulled from berlin and loved the german as little as the slav the army the chief unifying force in the empire speedily lost its admiration for its efficient ally by the autumn of nineteen sixteen the great austrian families and the whole corps of officers were in the mood to take offence at any hint of german dictation the dual monarchy was consequently no easy problem for germany to handle the non-german races with the exception of the magyars were avowedly hostile and they formed the bulk of the population while the austrian magnates cast jealous eyes on every proposal from berlin and were resolved to assert the interests of their caste against an ally who treated the whole earth as material out of which to make real her grandiose dream on october twenty seventh nineteen sixteen after the murder of the austrian premier count Sturk, dr ernst von koiber was entrusted with the formation of a new cabinet the austrian parliament unlike the hungarian parliament had never been in session during the war it had been prorogued in march nineteen fourteen and had remained suspended 
no public meeting had been allowed the censorship was rigid and sterk's career till the assassin's bullet cut it short was peace itself compared with that of other belligerent statesmen kleber was an honest and fairly liberal bureaucrat strongly pro-austrian and not disposed to listen readily to pan-german extremism his task was threefold to agree with germany on the future of poland to carry a new augsglat with hungary and to strengthen the non-slav elements in the austrian parliament by the grant of a larger autonomy to galicia all three tasks raised the question of relations with germany austria had accepted unwillingly the german scheme as to poland which was given effect to by the proclamation of november five nineteen sixteen but she hoped by her plan of galician autonomy so to embarrass the german settlement as to revive the austrian solution which berlin had rejected as to the new ausgleich with hungary it had been proposed to make it run for twenty years so as to make easy the economic rapprochement with germany on which the middle europa scheme depended it was clear that korber was inclined to prove refractory to german guidance on all points and the pro-german faction in austria took alarm the premier was bombarded with protests and memoranda from the national union the christian socialists and the other satellites of berlin he proposed to submit the new ausgleich to parliament and to this for obvious reasons both the austro-germans and the magyars were opposed its advantages to hungary were too apparent its severe burden in the shape of food taxation upon the austrian people too glaring on thirteenth december he found himself compelled to resign korber's fall seemed like the triumph of berlin and budapest over vienna dr spitzmuller was entrusted with the formation of a new ministry whose immediate business was to carry the new ausgleich but spitzmuller found it impossible to proceed without summoning parliament and such a step would raise other controversial matters which he wished to keep slumbering by twentieth december he had failed to make any headway and a bohemian noble count clam martinitz was called to the task at first sight this appeared to mark the dawn of a different policy the young emperor seemed to be about to surround himself with the advisers of his uncle the archduke francis ferdinand baron burian the faithful disciple of tisa who had succeeded count bechtold in january nineteen fifteen as foreign minister was replaced by a czech count ottokar chernin who had been noted in the past for his anti-magyar leanings the premier himself was a czech though of the germanized variety and on the whole the new ministry had a federalist complexion the more reactionary of the court officials and permanent civil servants disappeared and count bechtold who had always been at odds with tisa became court chamberlain it looked as if the emperor charles intended to make a stand against the tyranny alike of berlin and budapest but the appearance was illusory the bohemian members were at heart german centralists and had nothing in common with the true czech nationalists such as kramars and mazurik clam martinitz's program was substantially the same as his predecessors for the first three months of nineteen seventeen he attempted by secret cabals and open negotiations to effect a compromise between the conflicting interests 
but found the task too hard the demands of german nationalists austrian bureaucrats and courtiers and polish patriots proved incompatible suddenly upon this maze of intrigue and counter-intrigue fell like a thunderbolt the news of the russian revolution and the situation was at once transformed if russia was to be preoccupied with her internal affairs so that her military effort languished there was a chance of austria coming to terms with her if an understanding was to be reached it was essential that austrian policy should wear a democratic air and above all that she should appear to be liberal towards the slob nationalities it was a supreme chance for the restless genius of count chernin and on fourteenth april an offer inspired by him was made by vienna to petrograd but when the austrian parliament met on thirtieth may clam martinitz found his position impossible the negotiations with russia had not proceeded smoothly whatever attitude the new government in petrograd might adopt to the war aims of the allies it had very little to say to the overtures from vienna the poles had become intractable encouraged by russia's proclamation of a complete and independent poland on the first day of the session the czechs and the southern slavs demanded national union and they would not be put off with the old answer on sixteenth june the polish group resolved to vote against the budget and this decision compelled Klam martinitz to resign on twenty fourth june dr seidler formed a stopgap ministry of obedient civil servants meantime in hungary one remarkable event had happened in the last week of may count tisa fell from power up to the date of his fall he seemed to be more secure in office than any of his predecessors he had negotiated the still unconfirmed ausgleich which represented an uncommonly good bargain for hungary as against austria he was the close ally of berlin as befitted one who was responsible for the war the magyars and the prussians had natural affinities which count julius andrassy was never tired of pointing out and though tisa had no enthusiasm for mitreopa he had less for the ideals of the allies his following in parliament was strong for the opposition was never more than a bogus thing to be used as a means of blackmailing the emperor he held a singular position for a man of his antecedents a member of the ancient untitled hungarian gentry the title of count the badge of the austrian connection was inherited from his uncle and was not twenty-four years old he was by far the strongest man in the whole dual monarchy a staunch calvinist he dictated to austria one of the most catholic countries in europe his power came from his narrowness his courage and his contempt for opponents he laughed alike at those who made speeches against him and those who tried to murder him he bullied and baited all who threatened him from the emperor down to the petty aristocrats of the opposition he scorned tact and conciliation as the weapons of weaklings his own instrument was the hammer and he brought it down hard on the heads of all who stood in his way such a figure must rouse fierce antagonisms and tisa fell because he had made too many foes his rivals in parliament joined forces with the emperor and the combination was too much for him 
but there was never any question of a change of policy the three counts andrassy apony and Karolyi, were all sworn to germany's cause abroad and staunch for magyar domination at home though the last had a few progressive phrases which deceived casual observers in western europe it was a change of personalities not of principles the new premier count maurice esterhazy was a typical young hungarian nobleman who had been educated at oxford and ten years earlier would have been a declared anglophile he had been a brother officer of the emperor and had an urbanity and tolerance which had been lacking in his masterful predecessor but tisa though out of office remained in power and the bonds which germany had riveted were in no way loosened nevertheless the unpopularity of tisa and the desperate confusion of austrian politics gave the austrian foreign minister the chance for which he had been waiting his aim was to be the peacemaker of europe for in a speedy peace he saw the only chance for the perpetuation of the dual monarchy already the omens were alarming the downfall of tsarist russia brought the break-up of austria-hungary nearer for it removed italy's chief fears about the political orientation of any future southern slav state and this new fact in the situation was soon to be recognized in the pact of corfu signed on twentieth july by m Pashitz, the serbian prime minister and dr trumbitz the president of the southern slav committee chernin believed that the overtures must come from berlin and that berlin must begin by democratizing its household the submarine campaign was not succeeding as fast as germany had hoped and on this fact he built his chief hopes of success on twelfth april he presented a memorandum on the subject to the emperor charles which was duly communicated to the emperor william and his chancellor then chernin set himself to work on the reichstag and found a colleague and an instrument in herr ersberger an emotional frondeur who had been germany's ablest foreign propagandist and was now a busy go-between in the cause of peace if germany's policy was affected on one side by austria a second source of influence was a movement suddenly appearing in certain neutral states we have seen that early in april the internationale footnote this was the second international which dated from eighteen eighty nine close footnote woke into activity a body which having been founded to promote universal harmony and peace had exhibited to the world a marvellous spectacle of internal warfare transferred from brussels to the hague after the outbreak of war it had been a means for the self-advertisement of the dutch germanophile Troelstra and the belgian heisman who was not recognized by his countrymen it issued invitations for a socialist conference at stockholm and a dutch scandinavian committee was formed under the presidency of branting the leader of the swedish socialists and the most generally respected figure in his party in europe since the death of jarres his sympathies were strongly on the allied side and though he was not responsible for the original invitations he set to work to make the affair a practical success during may the delegations began to arrive and were received in audience by the standing committee the conference had suddenly assumed a new importance owing to the insistence upon it by the leaders of the russian revolution as the first step towards the clarifying of the issues of the war 
austrian hungarian and bulgarian delegations came and a curious group of bohemians who were entirely repudiated by the czech socialist party these deputies from enemy countries were to all intents and purposes emissaries of their governments with a mission to propose schemes which would do the utmost damage to the allies and the least to the central powers early in june came the delegation of the german majority socialists which included besides scheidemann the majority leader that hermann muller who on the eve of the declaration of war had invited the french socialists to vote against war credits the program which they circulated announced that germany had fought only a defensive war that the allies and especially britain were the aggressors and that imperialism was the cause of all the trouble imperialism of the allied and not of the teutonic brand meantime the conference was being hotly discussed outside scandinavia the french socialist party began by refusing the invitation and british labor stuck to the resolution of the manchester congress that there could be no relation with enemy socialists so long as the invaded countries were not evacuated but the russian situation began to raise difficulties the soviets continued to press for a conference and to repeat their formula no annexations or indemnities without any attempt at a further definition it was obvious that the attitude of these leading practitioners of applied socialism must weaken the original steadiness of the allied refusal the french delegates Moussis moutet and Kachin, returned from russia at the end of may and secured a vote of the french national council in favor of going to stockholm not indeed to sit with enemy delegates but to have a separate meeting with the standing committee on first june m ribon announced that his government would refuse to grant passports for any such purpose in britain the situation was slightly different no labor congress acknowledged the conference though the pacifist minority the independent labor party would fain have attended this the government refused to permit but on eighth june lord robert cecil declared that passports would be granted to the delegates whom the russian soviets had invited to petrograd on the understanding that the holders did not take part in any international conference at stockholm or communicate directly or indirectly with enemy subjects the concession was idle for the british seamen's and firemen's union full of bitterness at german submarine atrocities refused to allow the delegates to leave british shores the proceedings at stockholm during june were not calculated to induce more harmony in the reborn international it was found impossible to agree upon any formula and the german delegates issued a program which revealed most brazenly the farce of their whole position they put on the forefront no annexations and no indemnities and interpreted the latter phrase as excluding restitution for the ravages of war they were willing to safeguard the independence of the states which had lost it during the war such as belgium and serbia and of the states which had regained it during the war such as russian poland and finland and they insisted upon independence for those peoples still in slavery namely ireland india and the dependencies generally of britain france italy and japan 
they declined to regard alsace-lorraine as a special nationality and they made no reference to the subject peoples of austria germany and turkey their programme was not far removed from bethman hallweg's appeal to the war map the old doctrine of beate possidentes whatever stockholm failed to do it made the position of the scheidemann party abundantly clear they had come as government emissaries and they departed after completing their mission precisely like diplomats who had fulfilled their instructions so far there had only been preliminary meetings at which france britain italy and america had not appeared the standing committee proposed a plenary conference for august at which russia should be represented and four missionaries of the soviets toured western europe to prepare the ground it was at once apparent to those who made their acquaintance that the four drew no distinction between enemy and allied socialists that they were not interested in the question of the responsibility for war that they did not think in terms of nationalities at all and that their sole object was to prepare an international machinery for the class war which was their serious ideal presently it appeared that western socialists were hopelessly divided upon these and kindred questions a large number refused to meet representatives of enemy countries while the war lasted of those who were in favor of going to Stockholm, some wished only a consultative conference while others wished its resolutions to be binding some sought to have the question of the responsibility for the war put in the forefront some wished to meet enemy delegates only to indict them some were willing to postpone the indictment to the end provided that the conference decided on the question of guilt before it rose on the matter of policy one section believed that if the conference once sat the germans would entangle it in barren discussions and split the allied unity another section considered that any conference would lead to the revelation and condemnation of german pretensions the small pacifist section in france and britain welcomed stockholm as a step toward the realization of their desires since in their view any peace was just and all war unjust while opinion was thus confused mr arthur henderson returned from petrograd originally he had been strongly opposed to the idea of stockholm but his stay in russia had convinced him that something must be done to conciliate the extremists of the soviets if kerensky was to remain in power he also held that a conference would result in an exposure of germany which would strengthen the hands of the democracies opposing her mr henderson was one of the most trusted leaders of british labor he had been unswerving in his support of the war and he had first-hand experience of the russian situation his views were therefore entitled to all respect unfortunately he forgot as a member of the war cabinet what was due to his colleagues the british government had already declared explicitly against stockholm on any terms mr henderson accompanied the russian delegates to paris to discuss with the french socialists the conditions on which they should go to stockholm the french majority and the russians decided that any resolutions arrived at should be binding mr henderson and his british colleagues insisted that the meeting should only be consultative on tenth august the special conference of the british labor party in london by a majority of one million two hundred ninety six thousand votes declared that the invitation to stockholm should be accepted 
but only on condition that the conference was consultative and not mandatory this resolution was obtained mainly by mr henderson's influence and it was not easy to see its point for it accepted a conference on terms which the russians and the french majority had expressly declined next day mr henderson resigned his seat in the war cabinet and was succeeded by mr g n barnes there seemed much to be said at the time for mr henderson's view of the tactical value of a conference properly handled to the allied cause subsequent events were to make it plain that these arguments were not substantial the german delegates did not mean business and would have declined to be forced into the debating impasse which their enemies had intended for them while it was soon apparent that no conference on any terms could have seriously checked the rising tide of anarchy in russia moreover western socialism was not really in love with the project it was preponderatingly national and patriotic and only a small minority hankered for the international ten days after the first vote of the british labor party a second congress saw the miners change front and the majority for stockholm dropped to a handful while it refused the smaller socialist sections which were the most keenly interested the right of separate representation on fourth september the trades union congress at blackpool by a majority of nearly three millions affirmed the necessity of an international labor conference as a preliminary to a lasting peace but declared that any international conference at the present moment was undesirable so much for the stockholm card on which in the spring and early summer germany had staked largely it had failed because the ingenious politique had found himself faced by earnest and intransigent idealists who did not talk the same language but it had produced certain curious reactions within germany herself in june scheidemann was back in berlin expounding to his masters the situation as he had found it he told his government that if they wished to drive a wedge into the democracies opposed to them they must undertake some spectacular measures of reform footnote see his article in vorwarts of twenty fourth june nineteen seventeen germany standing as she does safe to the four winds germany who has not yielded to the strength of any conqueror must grant her own reforms to her own people End footnote other reasons were present to support this council unless german bureaucracy softened its voice and spoke smooth things of liberty and peace it would alienate its new and unconscious allies the russian extremists and so frustrate that primary object of the german policy the break-up of the russian army and the decomposition of the russian state there was the trouble we have seen brewing with austria who under her new monarch seemed to be moving towards an inconsequent liberalism and whose foreign minister did not cease to ingeminate peace the emperor charles too had been engaging in secret overtures to france in which he showed himself prepared to bargain with territory in german hands overtures which when disclosed a year later did not endear him to the berlin court finally in germany itself there was a growing desire for reform there had always been a sickly plant of that species but during the first years of war it had shriveled and died down now there had come reviving showers from the east 
even the orderly german populace could not be wholly insensitive to the amazing things which were astir beyond the divina they had suffered and endured greatly they had been shorn and had been dumb before their shearers but they were beginning to find a voice no sophistry could disguise the fact that they had an unduly small share in the government of their country and it was unpleasant to be held up in a world of free men as the only slaves the phenomenon was something far short of conversion it was a stirring in sleep rather than an awakening but the shrewd masters of germany were not willing to risk an outbreak if a judicious anodyne could be administered the more especially as the drug which was a soothing syrup at home might be made a fiery irritant for their foes the need was intensified by the passionate general desire for peace and a speedy peace the discomfort of the land had become appalling eris and messine had not been cheering and the situation in russia had not developed sufficiently to ease the strain the submarine campaign from which so much had been promised had failed to give the expected results german foreign policy as shown by the rupture with america and the bungling intrigues in mexico and switzerland had been one long series of fiascos moreover forebodings as to the economic future after the war were drawing in like a dark cloud about the minds of the captains of industry and the trading classes and the gloom was infecting the humbler folk who depended upon them for their livelihood it was realized that the russian formula of peace without annexations might be used to save german credit and to secure her in the most vital gains from the war while at the same time it would be in tune with the democratic jargon fashionable among her opponents only a few hot-headed extremists seemed to stand between the german people and that peace which they so gravely needed End of chapter eighty three part one